May these words of my mouth and this meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. When we approach scripture, we have a variety of options around how to read and interpret it. As history, both in the way events are recorded and the audience for which it was written. As literature, thinking about the way it was written and why. As revelation of God's relationship with us through the Trinity. What is the context of a small bit of scripture within a chapter, a book, the entire Bible? What did it mean then and what does it mean to us now, in time and out of time? The gospel, according to Mark, is a treasure trove of literary gifts, dramatic irony, secrets, surprises, urgency, stories within stories, clueless characters, conflict, and unifying themes. And they're all held together in a tight and succinct way. You see, Mark's was the first gospel, and 90% of the material in Mark is included in Matthew and Luke, but said in only 50% of the words. Mark uses the urgency of the word immediately, again and again, and similar phrases to keep the story going. This morning we heard just then and at once in our reading. Devices to keep the action moving and those engaging with the text. And I'm hoping to lift up some things that you all can watch for that will deepen and enrich our engagement with Mark. These devices also help when we consider that historically the early audience for the gospel would have been listening to it read. The entire gospel of Mark would take only an hour and a half to tell in Greek. And knowing this, that originally it was most often heard in its entirety by a largely illiterate audience, helps us to understand that we too should pay attention to the overarching themes and devices used to propel and unify the narrative as a whole. This morning, we find ourselves only two dozen verses into chapter one. And already, Jesus has been proclaimed and baptized by John, tempted in the wilderness. He has gathered his first disciples, and now we find him teaching and as his first public act, driving out a demon. It is a dizzying pace. I can picture the original audience hanging on every word, can't you? They've been given a great deal of information very quickly about who Jesus is. As to those clueless characters, Mark often takes a dim view of the disciples. 
Yes, they dropped their nets and immediately followed. But from that point on, even those closest to Jesus don't always seem to get who he is. This question of who Jesus is and by what authority he speaks and acts is not just present in this morning's reading, but throughout the Gospel of Mark. It is a unifying theme. Jesus' identity and authority are questioned all the way to the cross. The entire Gospel of Mark takes place in the shadow of the cross. A tightly woven gospel driven by mystery, action, and revelation. As to revelation, who is this Jesus? And what do those who hear him in the synagogue mean by authority? The scribes would have rightly introduced their teaching with statements like, this is a saying in our tradition, that. Or Rabbi so-and-so says. Even prophets in the Bible speak in a way that make it clear that they are not the authority, as we heard in the reading this morning from Deuteronomy. Jesus, however, uses I statements. I say to you, I am. This way of teaching was definitely new to those present in the synagogue, and they immediately wondered, who is he? Imagine the surprise of those present when the one who does know who Jesus is, who could identify him as Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God, is none other than a demon-possessed man. Imagine, too, with me, the delight of Mark's audience hearing this exchange, because they know who Jesus is. They've just heard a few verses earlier of the dove descending and the voice from heaven proclaiming, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. So much more than those who are in the gospel. This is akin to us watching a horror movie and wanting to yell at the screen, don't go into that house, because we know what's in there. Shakespeare utilizes this dramatic irony again and again in his plays. Juliet isn't really dead, and Cesario is not a good love match for Olivia. The very one who is the most directly threatened by Jesus knows exactly who he is. This use of ironic reversal is one of my favorite hallmarks of this gospel. And you will see it again and again over the course of Sundays. Jesus commanded the unclean spirit to leave the man. And the spirit obeyed. Jesus has authority. Jesus taught with authority, and he followed that by acting with authority. And because he displayed authority in two ways, ways that could be understood by all manner of people, not just the intellectual, 
and not just the superstitious. He was able to convince many, and news of him began to spread throughout the region. What is this, they asked, a new teaching with authority? And what does this scripture mean to us now? Now, when we know who Jesus is, we know how the story ends. A New Testament professor I had by the name of Matt Skinner talks about this text appearing here in the heart of the season of Epiphany. During this season, where we are celebrating and considering the means by which Christ becomes visible and known to the world. Where are we still amazed by Jesus' authority, by his teaching, and by his deeds and their potential to upend our assumptions about what is possible? Epiphany is not just about longing for and acknowledging past manifestations of Jesus' greatness and the gospel's power. It is also about discovering what deserves our amazement in our current moment to being surprised by Jesus. Are we open to the possibility of healing from that which possesses us? Greed? Lethargy, bitterness? Are we open to seeing the possibility that there is a new teaching, a new way to be? Are we able to set aside our need to be the authority in all of our own circumstances? Are we able to be open to perspectives other than our own? And are we ready to be surprised and open to hear the truth from the least likely person in the room?